Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. David Warfel, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Mark, it's a privilege to be here. I'm excited about this. You recently presented to our community in the Entree Architect Network, actually the first HSW session ever presented at the expert training sessions, because we've been doing business training for almost a decade, but you were the first HSW expert to come along and share your information with us. And it was an exceptional session. We still have people talking about it. It was very well done. So if you are a member of the Entree Architect Network, you should go check out the HSW session with David. It's the first one right on the list. Talks all about light and he's coming back. So if you like that one, we're going to have him back. That's HSW training sessions at the network. So, David, thank you for that. Oh, absolutely. It was a pleasure, and I can't wait to come back. Uh, let me introduce you to anyone who may not have seen that session or may not know who you are. David is the Chief Evangelist of Light at Light Can Help You, which is the name of the company. He's also known as the founding designer over at Light Can Help You. He's a Midwestern farm boy turned lighting designer, author, and educator who passionately shares the light of gift. And I can attest to that. He has lots of passion about lighting. Probably the most passionate person I've ever met about lighting and architecture. And whether blogging at languageoflight.blog is the blog 
who are writing for a fine home building or technology designer or on house.com or designing residential and entertainment experiences from coast to coast. David simply wants to help others live better lives through the scientific and artistic application of light. And as I mentioned, he's done some sessions with us. He's going to do some more sessions, but I wanted him to come here at the podcast because I wanted more people to hear about what he's doing. But during that session, David, you shared a little bit about lighting design and the way architects have learned about lighting and how lighting should be integrated into our projects. And we don't do it very well after seeing your session and hearing about the sessions that are coming. We really looked at lighting differently after your presentation. So I wanted you to come here and talk a little bit more about that conflict that we have as architects and really explain some of the things that we should be paying more attention to create better architecture using light. And so I can't wait to have that conversation with you. But before that, we didn't learn anything about you personally at the HSW session. So I want you to share your origin story. When did you discover your passion for what you do and maybe who or what inspired you to get started? Mark, I was just blogging on this the other day and thinking about to the beginning, like when did lighting specifically or when did light itself become a focus of mine? And I realized that growing up on a farm in central Illinois, you know, as the sort of the proverbial farm kid, I lived with a privilege that most North Americans don't have. And that was I woke up every morning, my window looked due east. I could wake up to the sunrise because there was nothing between me and the horizon. I could see the horizon. And now, of course, I look out my window and I see vinyl siding, you know, of the house (laughs) next door. It's a very different experience. And all day long, I had 360 degrees of sky above me whenever I was outside. And we were outside a lot as kids. And at night, I could see the Milky Way in the summer. I could see stars, way more stars than I can see where I live now in Madison, Wisconsin. You know, I can count a couple dozen on a typical night here. I could lose track easily in the country. And that connection to both light and darkness, I think maybe as an adult, I've just been trying to get back to that my whole life (laughs) through the application of artificial light. So as an origin story, you could also just say I was a kid growing up on a farm and there's not a whole lot to do. We didn't have television growing up, which makes me kind of a weird kid. So I built stuff with sticks. You know, I was out there getting my hands dirty. You know, I was the proverbial Lego kid. I thought I wanted to be an architect and got my first drafting table in middle school. You know, there were just a lot of different ways that I explored the creative arts before I decided I wanted to be an architect when I grew up. And I suppose Frank Lloyd Wright was important in that, but also Thomas Jefferson. I had family out in Virginia, so I was exposed to UVA. I was exposed to Monticello. And I had this mythical idea of the architect of being somebody who could do everything right? Someone who could do right. do it all. I mean, you take Thomas Jefferson, what do you get? You know, he designed a university campus. He also wrote the Declaration of Independence. You know, he was a president. He got us the Louisiana Purchase. The guy was into everything. <laughs> and I think maybe that formed my idea of what an architect was. And that was really appealing to me. And, and that's kind of how I got started. About how old were you when that seed was planted? Right about middle school. Mm-hmm which we called junior high and when I was growing up. But yep. it was right about then I had older siblings that had graduated from school and moved to Virginia. And that's kind of how I got connected to that 
particular piece of history. So even when I was in architecture school as an undergrad, my history essay, my architectural history essay was on Thomas Jefferson, and that was a focus. Where'd you go to school? I went to the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. I've got a bachelor's of science in architectural studies, a four-year degree, and intended to go back and get a master's, but life happened. I ended up with a different master's degree. (laughs) And so the origin story also coincides with an interest in light itself from a theatrical standpoint. And theater is really the first place that kids get to play with light. Yeah, It's like portable and, you know, you can play with it in ways you can't in architecture. (laughs) That appealed to me. So I ended up doing those two parallel paths for a while before I figured out you could merge them. Yeah. And lighting design, I would say it's probably the only place in, you know, a pre-university setting where someone would have any exposure to lighting design would be theater. Yeah. In high school, there's no lighting design class, right? But in theater, I was involved in the lighting side and the audio side of theater as well growing up in high school. And so, yeah, you start to recognize that lighting matters, right? If the lighting isn't right, the whole theatrical production could go wrong, right? And such a critical piece to the entire production. So I could see how that could certainly be an inspiration to you. You know, I taught for a number of years also in theater and architectural lighting. And it occurred to me that most of the time what's happening on stage in a play is a house or a building of some sort. You know, it's a section of it and it's cut open so you can see into the living room or whatnot. So in a way, I was doing architectural lighting at a very young age, long before I even knew it was a career, that it was a thing. I didn't even know it existed, but there was some experimentation happening in it at that point. So what happened after you graduated with that architecture degree? Building science, did you say? Is that what it was? A bachelor's of science in architectural studies. Got it. Right. So you needed some additional education to be licensed. So you said you graduated with the intention of going back. Yeah. You got involved in theater. How's the story go? Well, I like to say that I don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And at this (laughs) point, you know, pushing 50, it's not looking likely that I'm going to grow up. So I've got what I got. But after undergrad, I got married right after undergrad and my wife and I moved to Mississippi and we were AmeriCorps volunteers for a couple of years, building houses with Habitat for Humanity. Mm -hmm. And with that sort of ideal architect still in my head, I was designing the houses and then training volunteers to build them. And I was wiring houses. I was finishing concrete. By the end of those two years, I had touched just about every component of construction. And when I moved there, I was a cocky 22-year-old or whatever, had a degree in architecture. I thought I knew everything. I didn't know anything about building a house, of course. So I would learn it one week, and the next week I was teaching somebody else. And three weeks in, you know, I think we built something like 22 houses in that two years, almost completely with volunteer labor. It was like a crucible of practicality and appealed to the farm kid, you know, the sort of practical farm kid. But yeah. Quite a different experience than what I expected. I'd been offered an entry-level position with an architecture firm. And my wife, who's way smarter than me, was like, you know, we have an opportunity here to do something else for a bit before we kind of land in our careers and all that sort of thing. And that changed. You know, that was an incredible experience. And I learned a lot. Yeah. 
So was there a mindset shift during that period? I mean, that's an incredible experience. Not only did you learn about architecture and design and how to actually build a building, but you gave back, right? You provided a service to lots of people who needed a home and you were the catalyst of making that happen. And so there's a whole other component of service that many people don't get, right? And so that sort of certainly could shift your mind in a way. So what happened after that? Well, I do think it shifted my mind in terms of making service and volunteerism and giving really, or giving back a way of life for us that we still practice in various ways today. And I think to summarize what was, you know, I could talk about for days, that experience of service was, you know, there's the quote, and I forget who originally said it, but Martin Luther King Jr. repeated it, the, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And in that couple of years, my arc as a human was bent towards justice. So I'm not saving the world. I'm not a savior, you know, like I'm not Martin Luther King Jr., but the art got bent. And I would say everything I've done since then has been different. Yeah. But volunteerism, doing that kind of work is also really hard. (laughs) When we didn't have much of a support network, we were the first people to move, the first people from outside of the community to move there and try and do this full time. So we were kind of pioneering that experiment, if you will, of outside people coming in to provide labor. It's awesome to say now there are something like 50 or 60 people have gone through that since us. And there's like 15 people who live there full time, you know, like they moved there permanently. Like it's really a good story, but we were on the fast track to burnout and we didn't want to do that our whole lives. Right. And so we're like, well, I'll go back to grad school. You know, I need a degree in architecture. I've been toying with this theater thing for a while and and I can get a degree in theatrical lighting, a master's of theatrical lighting. So I'll go back and we'll start that. And, you know, my wife got a teaching job and we're like, all right, we'll grow up now. That was maybe the third time I was going to grow up. <laughs> so what was that progression? How did you get from where you were to where you are now? Well, I started the theatrical master's degree, lighting design master's degree. And I got a job while I was in school with a company called Charter Sills. And Mark Sills and Warren Charter were the principals of that. They were architectural lighting designers. They just happened to be in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, which is where I was. All the work was in Chicago. We had a Chicago phone number. They just didn't want to live in Chicago. So they lived there and we would drive up, you know, once or twice a week for meetings. It's about, you know, two hours if there was no traffic seven hours if there were, no, two and a half hours, three hours if there was. (laughs) And that was when I really began to understand what an architectural lighting designer was and that it was a viable career. I wasn't really sure about this, whether it was a thing or not. And then, of course, I discovered, well, actually, there's a firm here in town that's winning international awards and, you know, doing all this great stuff. And so I got brought in and because of my theatrical background, they were like, well, we got this project at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago, and it's going to be all like color changing, whatever, all this kind of stuff. So, you know, color, right? That's a theater thing, right? You do it, <laughs> you know, because architecture did white, you know. <laughs> so, I got involved in that, and that really shifted my career. And I was pretty much just 100% in love with lighting and what it could do still on stage. It took me a while to give that piece up, but certainly architecture at that point. So, I wandered around a little bit, taught at a couple of different universities, started my own firm, and 
eventually just said, okay, this is what I'm doing with 100% of my business time is architectural lighting. When you do launch, Light Can Help You. So Light Can Help You was a rebrand. So I was a full-time academic in 2014. I left. I said, I'm done teaching. I need to do something else. And that's when I launched David K. Warfel Lighting Design LLC, which just rolls off the tongue, you know. Got a ring to it. Yeah, it has a ring to it. Easy to remember. Yeah, there's a bunch of lighting designers out there who I call them scarf-wearing lighting designers, you know, that have (laughs) a cult of personality. And they're like, you know, walk in the room or, you know, hey, you've probably heard of me, right? You know, like, we want to be famous. We want to be known. We want to be artistic, et cetera. And so that's why I named the company after myself. I was like, I'm going to build this cult of personality around me. And, And that was not me. It was not a good idea. And I started getting into residential lighting. And then I had a midlife crisis, you know, really, it was kind of what it was, is figuring out, well, what is it that I want to do? Like, who am I really? And why am I doing this? All the sort of existential questions came into mind. It was actually crazy enough. I was involved in a Sunday school class where they made us do like Myers-Briggs and Enagram and all these different personality surveys. And I kind of figured out that what really lights my fire is helping people with light. Well, really just helping people. And then light was the thing I knew the most about. Right, yeah. And so I just dug in. And that was maybe 2018 when we rebranded. And since then, it's been explosive the last four or five years. What was the inspiration behind the name? That's the problem with being an entrepreneur and a small business owner, right, Mark, is that you you get to choose your own titles, you get to choose your own names. And then, you know, a few years later, you're like, well, that's kind of a weird name, but then it, you're stuck with it, right? So, but basically, I realized that the way we talk about light in terms of task, ambient, accent was kind of what we were taught in architecture school, you know, and, and make a nice grid. That that was like saying, okay, the good architecture is two by fours, house wrap, and granite countertops. And of course, we all know that's not a good house. That does not make a good house. Well, task ambient accent does not make good lighting. And I really started to boil down to what is it that is important about light? You know, why do I care? And I reframed the language that I used to talk about light into what light does for us. So I believe that light can help us live better lives. I believe that light can help us wake up easier in the morning, you know, relax faster when we come home, sleep deeply. Light can actually help us heal faster. Light can help us fight the diseases of aging, like dementia and Alzheimer's. Light can help us adapt to changes as we age. There are so many different ways that light can actually help us live a better life that I just said, oh, well, light can help us or light can help you. And it just, yeah, it just kind of happened. And the URL was available, so <laughs> I ran with it. Who would have ever guessed? Right. <laughs> right. It's a great name. I love that it is different, that it is unique, that it is a directive, right? That it's a, I don't know if it's a directive, but it's a description, right? I like it. It's a good name. Well, let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. Accurate data is crucial especially in today's business environment. Outdated and inaccurate data leads to turnarounds, delays, and rising costs. With supply chain and staffing issues, these costs and delays can multiply. That's why a resource like RCAT.com is so important. 
RCAT works with manufacturers to keep their data up to date and accurate and offers it to you easily accessible and free. Use RCAT's powerful search engine to find what you need fast and download it right there on their site without needing to pay for anything. It's free. You don't even have to register. So go try RCAT.com today. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. So you talked about the task light, ambient light, accent light is sort of what we've been all taught when architects design lighting, if they design lighting, because often the lighting's not even on the plans. Mm -hmm. If we do, it's very often just cans in the ceiling and a grid, you know, and some switches that switch which cans go on when you switch the light. And maybe if you're lucky, you might put a little D on the switch and it becomes a dimmer. And that's pretty much what most of us do, right? That's what I've always done because that's what I was taught. I've worked with lighting designers. And when I have worked with lighting designers, the architecture has flourished, right? Because of that light and the way that it's handled. Can you talk a little bit about that? And how can we as architects do it better? Well, I think as architects, you're in the perfect place to do it better because you think in 3D. You can visualize space. And that's something that is really rare in the world is someone who can visualize space before it exists, you know, who can feel that space before it exists. And that's probably why one of the components that helped me move into architectural lighting. Unfortunately, as you mentioned, the way we're taught to do architectural lighting, the way I was taught to do it is usually in 2D. We're looking at a plan and we're saying, okay, we need a grid. Where the center lines, where do they overlap? People ask, you know, what's the correct spacing for recessed downlights? And that's my first clue that they don't know what they're doing because there isn't an answer to that. And it's not about lighting the floor for me. Architects know indirect and direct lighting, right? And you think about indirect lighting often being bounced off the ceiling. Well, that's a great tool. If it's the only tool, it feels like an airport lobby where it's bright up on the ceiling and just sort of blah. And it's not a comfortable place to be. Oh, for some reason, we put the best light on the floor. So if we actually light the stuff that we see with our eyes, cabinets, art, walls, architecture, finishes, tile, you know, all the different things that we put on our walls, if we light those well, there will be indirect light on the floor. There will be plenty of light hitting the floor and the whole space feels better. The whole space will even feel brighter if we put the light where it's supposed to go. So I think in some ways, because of that education, because of what we've known light itself went from historically like we deified it light was a deity right it was god to many people it went from that to a commodity right to we got to get it because we need natural gas and we need sewer pipes to carry away our waste and it's like so how do we get it how do we do it cheaply you know put it in straight lines and walk away we just haven't had the time or the guidance to simplify what is an incredibly complex science and an art form into something that's just approachable and like, okay, I get it now. I can do a little bit better job. Like lighting needs to be that. And it's about seeing it in 3D, seeing it from the way a person in the space is going to see it. That's why I think architects are the only hope, right? The best hope for getting beyond four cans and a fan. Yeah, four cans and a fan. Exactly. And I think we can help if we have good guidance, right? Which is where you step in and sort of guide us on what we could be doing differently. You had said in what you just talked about, 
put the light where it's supposed to be, right? That it's not just a grid of light that just sort of blasts light throughout the room and maybe, you know, throw a dimmer on it because it's going to be too bright. So then you can control the level of that light and you're done. But actually, you said art and counters and cabinets and workspaces and, you know, put that light where it needs to be. And then the rest of it sort of is lit as well. The ambient light that comes from that will be enough to do the other things that those cans might do. I think we're also living in an awesome time for lighting because it's so much more than the light bulb in the can, right? The LEDs and the technology that lighting has brought us, we literally can do anything that we can imagine. And so it gives us an opportunity as architects to think beyond just the walls and the windows and the ceilings and the floors, but how do we use light as another layer of architecture? Artificial light, both natural light and artificial light. Many of us really do have a keen sense of natural light and how natural light comes in and into our buildings and affects the environment. But many of us don't really take that next step and say, well, what can you do with artificial light? Are there specific things that we could be doing and looking at that maybe as someone's listening to us right now, maybe they're working on a project where that light could be better? What are some of the things they should be looking at? Mark, you mentioned that architects know natural light, and that's certainly been my experience. You know, I did not follow through and become a licensed architect, so I work with architects. And you know natural light. You know how it gets into a building. You know what happens, you know, as it comes into a building and how to control it and how to bounce it around and how to make a space feel beautiful and use that kind of light. I would say from an artificial light standpoint, if you can simply translate and I use the word simply, it's not that simple. If you can simply translate what natural light does for your projects and find an electric equivalent of that, then you will be able to transform your projects at night as well as during the day. And for example, windows. We put a lot of windows in our buildings. We get direct sunlight, we get the skylight that's soft and fills the room. So, you know, most of the light coming in from our buildings is coming in straight at us. You know, it's coming in through those windows at us. And then at night, we flip on the lights and it's all coming down from above. Right. And it's a very different angle. Like our eyes are actually sunken into our heads because we don't like light from above. Like that's why we have an eyebrow, right? That's why we have this shelf above our eyes is we don't like it. And yet somehow... And I think it's just, you know, historically, candles only burned up and you, you could only put them on the seat, you know, like there were only limited places where you could put them. And we still do electric light that way. So I would say, put lights in the ceiling only when you have to. Yeah. And you will have That's to. That's a good rule. But figure out how you can light everything else more like the way natural light comes in, reveals through skylights, through windows, through, you know, all of those different ways that light comes in. Figure out how to do that and your spaces will feel better. I love that. I love sort of taking the ceiling and making it your last resort, right? Start everywhere else first. Think about what needs to be lit and how it can be lit. Because now with LEDs and all other lighting technologies, you literally can light anything any way. So start with that. Be creative and figure out what you want the light to look like in the space that you're designing. and then go to the type of lighting that you're going to use and put it 
where it needs to be. And then as a last resort, if you need to put something in the ceiling, then put it in the ceiling. You know, Mark, it just occurs to me as you're talking there that architects do something that most people find magical, and that is they sketch or they build a 3D model or whatever. They see it, right, from right. the point of view. You say, oh, I'm five foot above floor. Like, you actually pick that vantage point. Right. And I would say do lighting design from there. So do lighting design first on your sketch. I say, well, what do I want to hit in this sketch? What's cool in this sketch? What detail have I built? You know, what am I calling out here? What's the geometry of this space? Light it from there first and only go to the plan when you have to build something for construction drawings. When we start with the plan, we end up with nice tidy grids and well-illuminated floors, shadows on the counters, you know, shadows in the wrong places, artwork that loses its luster, architectural details that get lost, wood and cabinetry that's not as rich as it could be if the light was shining on them. That's how we do that, I think, by just by starting with a lighting plan. Yeah. That should be the last thing. I love that. I hope you listeners are being inspired by this because I think that there is a step in architecture that many of us are missing that can take our good projects and make them great just by focusing on the light and being more intentional about the artificial light and how it's being designed and developed. It may even be something that you can charge additional for. So it becomes this additional service that you can provide or just make it part of what you do in every project and increase your fees because you do it better and different than everybody else. Very inspiring. What would you say, David, if they focused on one thing, what would that one thing be that they should make sure they do in their project? And then I want to talk a little bit about costs. Sure. One thing was a tough question to answer. So I actually spent part of last year blogging on it. And I went through room by room of the house. And I said, okay, if I could only do one thing in the living room, right. what would I do here? If I could only do one thing in a kitchen, what would I do here? And the answer was different in every single room. Yeah, It was really different in every single room. So, And I would say it came down to what is the primary function in the room and how what's the best lighting for that primary function. You know, in living rooms, is it reading? Is it watching TV? Is it actually having conversation with your household members? And so you need to see their face in a good way, not in a scary <laughs> noir <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> um, way. Like, what is the most important thing you need to accomplish in that room? You know, a kitchen is an obvious one. People put recessed down lights over the aisle between the kitchen island and the countertop, which is just when you stop and think about it, doesn't make any sense at all. It needs to be over the counter where it illuminates what you're supposed to illuminate. Yeah. So I can't give you one answer for everything, but... Right, so check out the blog is the answer. Language of I guess so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So often when, and actually this happened after your session at the Entree Architect Network, people started talking about cost, right? That my clients won't want to pay me for that, so I can't do it. Are there ways that we can focus on the cost of the lighting to be able to still do the things that need to be done and make them affordable? Well, I would love it if every architect out there included an allowance for architectural lighting. The way 
allowances are often included for decorative lighting in a budget. Yeah. And if you did that, it would give you the wiggle room to do something. And it's so much easier to get lighting in the budget in the beginning than it is at the end when everything's 40% over and the, the client is, you know, yeah. dying because they made all these expensive choices. That's a hard time to do it. So, you know, if you included, for example, an allowance of five bucks a square foot for architectural lighting, then you'd be way ahead of what happens in virtually every project. Yeah. Our average is like 15 bucks a square foot for the cost of the architectural fixtures, but five bucks is a start. So I would say, you know, just start there. And if you've got good sketching people and rendering people, or you're good at sketching, sketch a project with good lighting and sketch a project with basic lighting and show those to your client and say, you know, this is a dollar or this is, you know, a couple of bucks. This is five or 10 bucks installed and let them choose, but they don't have enough information to actually make a choice. We show them a plan. They say that looks like too many lights. So you have to simplify it down to what does it look like and what's the cost per square foot? Yeah, I think that's great advice to add it to the budget from the beginning, make it something that they are expecting, right? Just make it part of the process that you provide, right? That if it's just part of architectural design, most clients have never done a project before, right? Most of our, as a residential level, when you're working with large additions and renovations or a new house, often it's the first time they've ever worked with an architect. So they're going to take your guidance, And that if lighting design is just part of your process and you just include it in part of your process and include it in the price of architecture, then they're going to just let you do it because that's what they expect that you're going to do. You're going to provide them with the best service that you can. If lighting is part of it, then they're just going to say, okay, that's what architecture costs. That's what building costs. And then you get to do the design that really should be part of your project. Great advice. They've come to you to be the expert. Right. They're looking for your leadership in their decisions. They came to ask you to help them spend a lot of money, right? And you can help guide them into how that money is spent. So it's tough, but most people will probably end up enjoying, you know, five or 10 bucks a square foot in lighting more than they will a particular countertop or, you know, some of the other things that are big ticket items. Homeowners see the value in that, but they don't see the value in lighting. So there's no real reason for them to spend any money on it, but you can help them see that. Yeah. And especially if you could, like you said, David, is if you can present that in a way that they can see it in the design, right? If you can do a rendering that shows this is this space without lighting and this is the space with great lighting, they will instantly see the difference. And they'll say, yes, I want that. I want that amazing lighting. And then they'll want it everywhere because they'll see the difference. Some great suggestions, David. This is inspirational. We, we can go on for hours talking about lighting and how it can be done. And we're looking forward to more of your guidance through the expert sessions. But before we wrap things up here, I wanted to ask you, and I already asked you one thing, but I wanna ask you, what is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? You're a business owner. You've gone through the struggles of putting together a business and making it work and being successful in the things that you're doing. What's one thing that an architect should be doing today to build a better business for tomorrow? So as you mentioned, Mark, you know, I started out small. It was one person firm. You know, there are 13 of us now. 
probably, you know, we could easily end up hiring another five people this year as the growth trajectory continues. And if I could go back five years and tell myself something, right, (laughs) that would have affected everything from there, I would have charged more. I really think that we love what we do and we want to deliver it as cheaply as possible so that we can help as many people and we can get architecture into as many places or lighting into, like, we want to keep that down. But it limits our ability to grow. It limits our ability to develop the renderings that you can show a homeowner. You know, it limits our ability to take time to go to a conference and learn more about lighting. Like when we don't correctly value our services, there's no way for the homeowner to do so. And I think it just, it limits. Then when you finally realize that you're not charging enough, you have to raise your prices and that puts a bad taste in everybody's mouth. Right. And of course, you know, we've had to raise our prices every year because I started out way, way, way too low. So that's one thing I would tell myself if I could go back in time. That's great advice. I love that answer. His name is David Warfel. The company is Light Can Help You. You can find him at that website, lightcanhelpyou.com. And you should go there. There's lots of resources, lots to learn there at Light Can Help You. The blog is awesome languageoflight.com, languageoflight.com. You can learn all about lighting there. A lot more of what we just went through here at that blog. So we'll have links to both of those on the show notes for this episode. So you can just go to this episode and click those links. David, thank you. Thank you for being out there, being an evangelist for lighting and light in architecture. I love people who are passionate. I love people who are out there doing that one thing that they are passionate about and that they're really good at and just like literally evangelizing it because that's what you're doing. When you speak about it, you talk about it, when you teach it, it comes through. Your passion is there. Your knowledge is there. It's exciting and interesting to watch you and have you present. And today was no difference. Thank you for coming by here and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Mark, thanks so much for the opportunity. It's great talking to your members and I hope people find something helpful. I'm sure they have. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. I know I say this every episode, but I'd really love for you to send me some feedback. Share a rating, write a review, however you want to do that. And please share a link to this episode with a friend. Just send it off in an email. Say, hey, Take a listen to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast because that is how Entree Architect has grown to serve thousands more architects just like you. I appreciate it. Share a rating, write a review, and share a link to this episode with a friend. Thank you to all our sponsors for this episode. Links to all our sponsors and all the resources that we discussed today in this episode are available at the show notes for this episode and all the episodes can be found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of the Gable Media Podcast Network. That's the media network that's dedicated to architects, engineers, and construction pros. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. If you like this podcast, if you like Entree Architect podcast, I think you'll love all the podcasts at Gable Media. Go check them out at gablemedia.com. My name is Mark Arlapage. Thank you for listening to this episode of Entree Architect Podcast. I appreciate you. Love, learn, and share what you know.
I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.